Psalm 126, which we're looking at today as we walk through the Psalms of Ascent, starting in Psalm 120 at the beginning of the summer and ending in Psalm 130s at the end of the summer. Psalm 126 involves remembering, praying for, and anticipating restored fortunes, which we're going to look at. It's a psalm of joy. It's littered with words like laughter, gladness, dreaming, and joy, 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 multiple times. So what I want to look at this morning is, what is the joy that is offered or promised to us in the Lord? How do we tap into it? And what gets in the way of us experiencing the joy of the Lord? We'll look at Psalm 126, a little bit at the prophets and Paul, and then our own joy issues, if you would. In Psalm 126, we just read it, but let me reread the first portion. It's actually a psalm in two parts. The first half is remembering, the second half is a prayer. So the first half reads like this. When the Lord restored the fortunes, remember that, of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So the first thing I want us to see is their description, the description of the psalmist, that when the Lord restored their fortunes, we were like those who dream. And I don't think this means dream at night when you're asleep. You don't think about anything, because sometimes those dreams are just really weird, right? It's more like a daydream or a fantasy, which nearly everyone does as they anticipate and look forward to what they want life to really be like. The two most common dream areas in daydreams are either hero dreams or martyr dreams. The hero dreams are the ones where you accomplish or get whatever it is you really want, and the martyr dreams are where, in a sense, you get payback. When somebody has hurt you or wronged you, they come groveling, begging for your repentance because they realize how wonderful you are. In any way, our daydreams, our fantasies, are what we would like life to be like if we could control everything. And what the psalmist is saying is when the Lord acted to restore us, it was like our greatest dreams, our wildest dreams, our fantasies actually came true. The Lord restored the fortunes. That means a radical change from a condition of God's wrath to God's favor. Most commentators point to the return from exile when Israel spent 80 years, 70 years in exile in Babylon after the whole nation had been overrun and the people taken away, it's when they returned to Jerusalem and settled there. They went out with shouts of joy, with songs of celebration, with all the nations celebrating with them. It reminded me as I was thinking about the first half of this psalm about the uh, World War II movies I've seen where the allies marched through France or occupied Belgium and as they roll into the cities, the people pour out with singing and dancing. I read one letter that was written by a British soldier talking about how they literally could not move the tanks and trucks forward as they went through towns in Belgium because the people came out, flowers, kissing, wine, food. He said, I ate, ate, ate all day long and we couldn't move. And it was a day of just celebrating and wild joy because these people, after four years of Nazi occupation, had been liberated. That's what the psalmist is talking about, a wild celebratory rejoicing because God had acted to liberate them. Once the psalmist remembers this joy in the past, 
he is confident to bring his prayer before God. So the prayer says this, verses 4 through 6, Restore our fortunes, O God, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's a prayer that as God acted in the past, that he would act again in the present. Restore our fortunes again, God, like streams in the desert. Yes, you did restore us in the past, but right now we feel like a desert. The commentators aren't sure what situation is being talked about. Was it a time of drought in Israel? Were they surrounded by enemies again, about to be occupied and overthrown? The theological sum of the whole prayer is a longing for God to make things right for his people. The prayer is basically this. God, we want joy again. We want full and lasting joy. We need our fortunes restored again. And not just crops and rain, but salvation. We need you. And Psalm 126 is not just a prayer, it's actually a promise too. I think you're meant to read it not just as a, oh, I wish this would happen, but there's a confident assertion in the way the psalmist talks about those who sow tears shall reap joy. Those who go out weeping shall come home with joy. The anticipation is regardless of the situation that you're in right now, God has a promise for you of joy, of future restoration. And this was Israel's longing and hope throughout the Old Testament. If you go read through the prophets, you will find that this idea of restored fortunes is consistently brought back again and again throughout the prophets. And the vision of restored fortunes is helpful for us to think about because I think we want to get a hold of how we can apply it in our own lives. And thinking about just crops and gardens doesn't quite match up with the theological implications of it. But think through some of the language that's used. In Amos 9, Amos was a prophet. In Amos 9, the prophet talks about restored fortunes. And the the description that's given is of cities being rebuilt, of having vineyards and being able to drink from the vineyards, and of gardens and being able to eat the fruit of the gardens. So it's the idea of like domestic life at its best, which was really the Israelite ancient world's daydream about what life should be like. But in Joel 3, the same same idea of restored fortunes involves getting back at your enemies. It's vindication. It's judgment on the enemies of God and on the enemy nations. It's justice being brought. God, for fortunes to be restored, we don't just need vineyards and gardens. We need justice. But in Psalm 85, again, a very similar parallel to Psalm 126, the prayer is, again, for restored fortunes, But the psalmist admits, in order for our fortunes to be restored, we need our iniquity, our sin, to be forgiven. We need you, Lord, to turn away your wrath. So if you were to look at all the different places where restored fortunes are talked about in the Old Testament, basically restored fortunes needed God to arrive, to bring judgment, to forgive, and to bring new life. In that sense, Psalm 126, like much of the Old Testament, is anticipating and looking forward to Jesus. I mean, think about it. In the cross, Jesus 
is God arriving to bring judgment and justice and forgiveness in order to bring restoration, to right all wrongs. And in his resurrection, he looks forward to the restoration of all things. Christian joy is built out of that. It is a hopeful celebration that all that we really need in life has already been restored to us and will one day be in full. So we are enabled to live into the fullness of joy. But when I think about the word joy, it's one of those ones that I don't do well with because I often think about it, maybe like you do as well, as an emotion. And some of you are, by personality, tiggers, right? So the idea of joy looks like your smiling face all the time. Others of you are more like Eeyore, and tiggers make you really annoyed. And some of us are more like the log that Winnie the Pooh sits on outside of his house. We emotionally flatline all the time. And I think joy is available to all of those people, to Tiggers and Eeyores and Logs. At least I hope it is. Joy is not an emotional state that might be more to do with your genetics and your makeup, right? It, joy is the present state of having peace in God, which is possible when you fully believe and apply what God has already done for you. That's what the psalmist is doing. He's applying what God has done and bringing it to bear on his present. And it's a confident and certain hope in what God has promised that he will do in the future. Joy in the present is based on fully believing what he has done in the past and certain hopefulness about what he will do in the future. It's letting the promises of God be your reality. That is true joy. Many people don't know true joy, the restoration of all things in their life, or they don't tap into it. And so many of us, Christians included, seek joy on our own. We try to manufacture joy. Manufacture joy is a fragile counterfeit to the true joy that's offered in Jesus Christ. Eugene Peterson wrote, a common but futile strategy for achieving joy is to eliminate things that hurt us. Get rid of pain by numbing the nerve endings. Get rid of insecurity by eliminating risk. Get rid of disappointments by depersonalizing your relationships. And then try to lighten the boredom through vacations and entertainment. There isn't a hint of that kind of joy in Psalm 126. To expound upon what Peterson is talking about, many of us think of joy as being experienced primarily in fun and pleasure. And so many people in life seek joy by trying to maximize food and drink and sex or entertainment, vacations, sports, things that they enjoy in life. And these things are not bad things, but they're not the fullness of joy. Pleasures in life are meant to be word pictures of a greater joy. In the Old Testament, the language that they had for the greatest life that could be imagined was, was buildings that you lived in, gardens that you ate from, and many children. 
That was their vision of the fullness of life. But that was the best language they had to get a hold of the anticipatory joy of what was available in eternity in Christ. Well, in God at that time. I think that we're meant to see that the greatest pleasures of this life are like a photo instead of the actual person. If you have lost somebody close to you in life, if you have lost a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a child, you still have pictures of them. Are you satisfied with the pictures? No. They achingly remind you of the person that's not there anymore. If you have to be distant because of military for a year, the pictures remind you of wanting to be present with them. That is what the greatest pleasures of this life are meant to be. They're meant to be photos that cause us to long for the greater thing that they're pointing to. But instead, most of us, as the Englishman talked about, settle for puddles instead of the vacation at the beach. Christians should actually enjoy pleasure more than somebody who doesn't believe in God. Because you don't just enjoy the present, but you're also anticipating the greater heavenly thing that it's pointing to. Some people think joy is experienced primarily in fun and pleasure. Others aren't really concerned about experiencing joy. They're really worried about the opposite of joy. They think the opposite of joy is pain and suffering, and so their goal in life is to avoid suffering as much as possible. This very often happens because somebody has dealt with trauma in their life or a lot of past pain. They have lost somebody, they've been hurt by people, and as a result, they live their life not wanting joy, but trying to avoid pain. And so you seek control of every aspect of your life and settle for a life with as little pain and suffering as possible. You may not have fun, you may not experience a lot of things, but you've protected yourself. You see this as we are the sort of people who avoid commitment, because if I commit, then I could be hurt. And you see it in people who want to avoid commitment, especially with other people. If you don't get close to somebody, guess what? They can't hurt you. C.S. Lewis wrote about this when he said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap your heart carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of yourself. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change and become lifeless. The idea that the opposite of joy is pain, and so it's better to at least just avoid pain and suffering, is not to understand the opposite of joy. The opposite of joy is not pain and suffering. It's despair, hopelessness, or indifference, lack of love. See, in the Bible, laughter does not exclude weeping. In Psalm 126, actually, it says that in order to reap joy, you have to sow sorrow. 
I don't think that means we should go looking to sow sorrow, but there is some deeper, greater joy that's available to those who have stepped into the deepness of sorrow and tears. It's a deeper joy that can be found in numbing yourself with pleasure or escaping and avoiding risk. Often people who have experienced the deepest suffering and sorrow and pain are the ones who have learned to look to God alone and not circumstantial happiness as a source of joy. Manufactured joy is something we all turn to at various points in our life. We do it on a daily basis, either trying to escape or trying to numb. But true joy is what God offers, and we don't often fully tap into it. How do we? True joy comes from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. So Israel, if you look through not only Psalm 126, but also the other places where the restoration of fortunes is mentioned and the joy that goes with it, in order for Israel to have their fortunes restored, so to speak, they needed God to come and arrive. We believe in Christ God did come. He did arrive for us. And when you put your trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into you. He arrives for you and in you to work in your life. The Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, offers freedom, healing, hope. It's available to anybody who put their trust in Christ. You may not tap into it fully, but it's there. The Spirit is the one that assures us that God loves us, And it's by the Spirit that we are enabled to know and experience God in a very real and daily way. It's by the Spirit that we can love God more than all the other things we tend to turn to. You see, the Spirit of God, when He enters into you, begins to transform your desires, your perspective, so that you delight in and desire God, not in other things. Spirit-filled joy is not greatly affected by suffering or success. Hear that again. Spirit-filled joy is not greatly affected by suffering or success. The greatest thing in the world can happen to you according to everyone else, and that's great, but your joy is not found in career success or victories on the field or getting straight A's or having people like you. And if all that is stripped away, if your very health is taken from you, it does not mean your joy is gone because the Spirit is still in you, drawing you to God, assuring you of God's love, giving you the confidence of hope in the future. Spirit-filled joy is not affected greatly by suffering or success because your joy is in knowing God and not in approval or health or success or any other source of joy. To find true joy, you need to tap into the spirit that is in you and available to you. And of course, true joy is also found when you seek and desire God solely, wholly. In Philippians 4, to jump out of the Old Testament to the New, in Philippians 4, Paul says, which I read at the beginning of the service, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. That sounds like a a trite, annoying thing to say. Oh, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. 
especially if you're going through a hard time in life. But the amazing thing is Paul says this while he's languishing in a prison. Philippians is written from a prison cell. Prison cells were awful things in that ancient world. Many people starved to death. You had no help, no hope. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How can he say that? Well, he explains a little bit. He says in verse 6 of Philippians 4, just a couple verses later, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So you want to rejoice in the Lord always, even if you're languishing in, in the, your physical life? He said, present all of your requests to God with thanksgiving. You know what that with thanksgiving means? is even your greatest desires and prayers to God, you offer up fully to him, thanking him in advance of his answer. So it's saying, God, here's what I desire in life, but however you answer me, I give you thanks because I know that what you bring about is the good I need more than the good I think I want. And in that process of giving thanks to God, he also talks about do not be anxious about anything. The word anxious is a Greek word that if you break it down to its original, it means to be scattered of thought, to have a lot of different things your brain is going all over to. So Jesus, in talking with Mary and Martha, the story in, in Luke, says, Martha, you are worried about many things. You're kind of concerned about all the different things that are going on in your house. Mary has chosen the better things. She is singularly focused on me. The opposite of anxiety is a singular focus on God. Do you want to be able to rejoice always, give thanks in advance, and have a singular focus on God? It's essentially what Paul says two verses later, again, when he says, finally, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. What things are lovely, true, commendable? It's not pretty thoughts of nice decorations. He's talking about God. Think about God. Fix your mind on God. His character, his acts, his promises, what he has done, what he says about you. Think about that, not the other things that occupy your mind. Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the trouble with Christians is they listen to themselves when they should talk to themselves. Listening to yourself, if you listen to yourself, it's when you just let your brain control where your brain goes, right? And so you daydream and fantasize about what you want. Or you're anxious and worried about many things going on in your life. Or you're dealing with guilt feeling terrible about yourself, or you're proud and falsely secure in your great successes and amazingness. When you listen to yourself, you wander into circumstances and self-focus. Don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself, by which Lloyd-Jones means preach the gospel to yourself constantly. Think about what Christ has done, 
and as a result of Christ has done who you are in Christ. Let that be your reality. Let that preach into your anxiety. Let that humble you from your pride. Let that orient you instead of your own wants and desires. In other words, for true joy, you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, to know what he has done, and to believe that what he has done is the true restoration you need in life, not whatever else you think you need, and then to apply what he has done into your life. That phrase that is in Psalm 126 two different times, and it's found throughout the Old Testament prophets, restore the fortunes or restored fortunes, is a doubling of a Hebrew word where it's actually shub shiba or shuv shiva, and it literally means turn a turning. Now the translators say restore our fortunes, but if you're translating it literally, it would say turn a turning, Lord, And turn a turning means return something to its original and intended state. Return it to its intention and design. Pastor Josh Moody wrote, to be truly joyful, you need to be restored to who you were designed to be. And who you were designed to be is a God-centered you. The gospel enables you to become you as you were meant to be, a new creation. In Christ and through the Holy Spirit, God offers and promises for you to become who you were designed to be. So, who were you designed to be? Now, none of us are going to take the time to do that, but if right now I let your brains wander and write down who were you designed to be, Most likely what you would do is what I did when I was thinking about this, which is I would defend how I'm already living and how I see myself. I would basically, if I would say, who are you designed to be? You would write down your vocations, your talents and gifts, your skill set. Who am I designed to be? Oh, a father, a minister. I'm designed to be creative. I'm designed to be... But who you were designed to be is more than the sum of your skills and talents and vocations. Who you are designed to be is not your resume. If you want to know who you were designed to be, you need to look to Jesus. Who he was, what he did, and what he did says about you. Think about Jesus. How did Jesus deal with others? How did Jesus deal with people who hated him? How was Jesus dependent on and obedient to God the Father? Think about how Jesus did not exploit, Jesus did not exploit his intelligence, his psychological insight, his incredibly high emotional IQ, or his spiritual power as the Son of God. He did not exploit those things for his own good, but always used everything available to him for God's purposes and the good of others. Look to Jesus. 
and look to what is yours because of what Jesus did. You are forgiven. You can be healed from your past, freed from bondage, assured that you are loved and accepted, and have the power of the Spirit in you to have hope for eternity. Think about those things, and then answer the question, okay, in light of who Jesus is and what he did, who are you designed to be? The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God has turned a turning in you, if you would. And through the Spirit, God desires you to become who you were designed to be, to enjoy a life that is true and lasting joy. Let's pray. God, our prayer and your promise to us is that you have and will restore our fortunes, enable us to be who you designed us to be, to tap into and enjoy a joyful life to the full. Give us hearts that are willing to surrender our desires to yours, minds that are not fixed on our own wants, but on you, and to see and trust in Jesus and him alone. Amen.